Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So we have lots of variations when it comes to the way the vulva looks. So there is a lot of talk in the online space about like how a vulva should be uniform in color and you know the the labia minora the inner lips they should be tucked inside and like this is what it should look like and it's you know perfection um and that doesn't track with reality in fact that tracks with cosmetic surgeons who are trying to push procedures but it doesn't track with reality of what we see Hello, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And this week, I am joined with my friend and colleague, Dr. Jolene Brighton. She is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist, a clinical sexologist, a prominent leader in women's medicine. She's an international speaker, clinical educator, medical advisor within the tech community, and considered a leading authority on women's health. She is part of Mind Body Green Collective, a faculty member at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Her work has been featured in the New York Post, Forbes, Cosmo, Huffington Post, Bustle, The Guardian, ABC News. She's also a author of Beyond the Pill and Healing Your Body Naturally. And her latest book, Is This Normal? Judge-free straight talk about your body, sex, hormones, periods, and everything else you've ever wanted to know. Dr. Jolene and I are aligned on so many things. And as you might guess, this conversation, not safe for little ones. If you are listening with little people in the car uh, or uh, they're around, you're playing this in the background somewhere, I would suggest turning it off until a later time. We talk all about the anatomy and function of the vagina, the vulva, uh, the clitoris and becoming clitorate. We talk about orgasms. We talk about hormones that impact our libido. So we talk about glucose and insulin and cortisol. We talk about how these change in perimenopause. We talk about the anatomy of the vulva. Is it supposed to have hair? What is the color supposed to be like? What is it supposed to smell like? What is vaginal discharge? The difference between discharge and cervical fluid all of the things. I think this is going to be such an incredible conversation for you to get to know your vulva and your vagina potentially a little bit better so you can become besties with her. And of course, for you to talk about with your girlfriends, with your daughter uh, or your daughters, your nieces, anybody who needs to really have the straight talk in terms of what it means to take care of this beautiful uh, body that we call female. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jolene Brighton. I am a huge fan of the Bio-Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, 
taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementi's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. And for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. All right. Dr. Jolene Brighton, my friend, welcome back to The Better Show. Happy to have you back on again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be one of our recorded conversations because we talk in real life too. Yeah. And this is, we are uh, celebrating your new book for those of you watching on YouTube, Is This Normal? A judge-free straight talk about your body, sex, hormones, periods, and everything else you wanted to know. And man, this is a great, well, first of all, I'll say fabulous book. I read the whole thing. It's great. Did a great job on this. And Thank you. I That's know. impressive. So many people are like, I thought, you know, I usually read a book in one night, but like this is taking me a while. Um, it's interesting to see the split because there's definitely people that Amazon reviews went up and I was like, how did people already read this? And then someone was like, I was on a plane and read the whole thing. Like wow. I just read the whole thing like in one sitting. I'm like, that is incredible. That is impressive because there's a, th- there's a lot of density to the to the book as well. Like it's not just I mean, it's not, anybody can understand it. I think you've written it so that you don't have to have letters behind your name, but there's a, there's a lot of really great information in here. And one of the things I actually just wanted to start here because I was reading your bio and I was like, wow, when did I miss that you became a certified sex counselor? Is that something recent or is that, did I just not know that about you? No, um, it is recent. Like during the pandemic, I, I don't know about you, but like during the pandemic, I was I was looking at all kinds. I'm like, we're in lockdown. 
I might as well learn something. And I was looking through different educational avenues and I was like, I really want, I want to pursue this. It's something that I'd been studying for a really long time, going to conferences, reading all the research, doing the thing. And I was like, you know what? We're all, we're all at home now. And because you didn't have to actually travel anywhere, a lot of programs opened up and actually went even deeper and you got access to way more professors than you would otherwise because now it was virtual. Um, so yeah, it is recent in the last several years. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe it's been like more than three years since I've seen you. Well, you know, what's, what's so amazing about that is as a woman's health educator, obviously, uh, you know, your first book beyond the pill, you're talking obviously a lot about some of the hormonal fluctuations through the cycle, which of course includes and encapsulates things like lubrication, libido, Mm -hmm. sensitivity of the clitoris, like all of the things that we're going to be talking about today. So it actually makes perfect sense that you would go on to uh, talk about some of these more nuanced topics in the sex realm. And we were talking just before uh, we started, um, I'm definitely going to make um, an introduction. I think you you are going to love uh, Dr. Lori Mintz, who was on the show, yeah. talking about, you know, the, you know, being clitorate and the clitorati and all the things. So. I need to listen to this. I know. Oh, she's the um, best. With my book, people are like, you really need to read her book. And I it's on, it's actually in my Amazon wish list and it will uh it's it will be now expedited and I will move it to the front of the queue. Amazing. Um, You're gonna love her. Well, with that, why don't we just dive right in? So your book essentially is is divided into three parts. You talk about mm-hmm. your sexual self, you talk about your hormonal self, and then the third part is about a program to sort of rectify or remedy some of the issues that someone might be running into. And I think the, you know, the, in, in terms of female education, there's not really a lot of discussion, at least in the public forum, around normal anatomy, normal mm-hmm. variances in anatomy, color, appearance. So I thought we might just start off with Let's just talk about what it look, what a vulva. Let me let's let's just start with terms. Uh, vulva yeah. versus vagina. Let's just start yeah. there for everyone. What is the difference between a vulva and a vagina? Really simply put, vulva is the outside, vagina is the inside. Although everyone calls everything a vagina these days, it can make it confusing. But that's that's the simple basics of it. Okay, so vulva outside, vagina inside. So let's talk about some of the normal variances of the vulva. So the external uh, appearance of the lips, the labia majora, the labia minora, are we supposed to have hair? What is Mm -hmm. it supposed to, is it supposed to be darker than the rest of our skin, lighter than the rest of our skin? Tell us what it, tell us a little bit of some of the normal variances that you outlined in the book. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on this along with diagrams. I actually commissioned an artist to draw the diagrams. I'm like, this vulva needs to have hair. When you go and look at diagrams of vulvas, they don't usually have hair because you're trying to learn the anatomy, right? And so the normal, you know, variance of vulvar hair, it, it, you know, it can be anywhere from having just a sparse amount of hair to having like what people would call a full on, also normal, wanting to grow it out and not care, also normal. So we have lots of variations when it comes to the way the vulva looks. So There is a lot of talk in the online space about like how a vulva should be uniform in color and, you know, the the labia minora, the inner lips, they should be tucked inside and like this is what it should look like and it's, you know, perfection. Um, 
And that doesn't track with reality. In fact, that tracks with cosmetic surgeons who are trying to push procedures, but it doesn't track with reality of what we see. So what we see is lots of variation. Roughly 50% of women will find that the labia minora extends beyond the labia majora, which are the outer lips. Uh, color variations. I mean, you can have mahogany, you can have brown, and you can have pink. But this is an area that's very concentrated in melanocytes. Those are the pigment-producing cells. And melanocytes down there will respond to changes in hormones. So when we get that estrogen surge in puberty, when we're pregnant, then as we go through menopause, we'll see that the tissue change is infused into the area where you have blood perfusion in the tissue itself. So there's lots of variation when it comes to shape, size, color, hair distribution, and there's a wide range of normal. Even though if you went to like, you know, WebMD or some medical database on the internet, you Netter. would see <laughs> Netter. Netter, yeah. Okay, so like the story goes that Netter, okay, for people who don't know, Netter is like the man who made all of the anatomy textbooks. I actually, I'm like, where's my Netter? My Netter book's like back there. I had to buy a second copy because I destroyed the first in chiropractic college. Yeah. Oh, really? To, yeah, because it was so, it, it was so battered and tattered. I had to buy another one, but yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So Netter, he, he the the artist who drew all of these anatomical images that doctors learn from the story goes that it was his wife his wife was the model for a lot of these things so there's um some images of like cushing's disease and hypothyroidism and stuff and you'll see this woman and that's mm-hmm. allegedly his wife i have always wondered is that her vulva like mm-hmm. is that was that her vulva i don't think so because it is again uniform in color. The, you know, labia minora is not protruding beyond. It's symmetrical. We're not seeing the variations that we see in real life. Vaginas out in the wild, vulvas in the wild, if you will. And part of that is because it's about learning the anatomy, right? And it's about education. Like we don't, we don't show a lot of variations in like the way the intestines are set in the abdomen, in the abdominal cavity. So, you know, there's a case to be made of like, you're just learning from this, but I think it is also something where the general public individuals who are seeking information see this and think, well, if that's what doctors are learning, that must be what's normal. Yeah. And I think it also creates, uh, you know, frankly, bias in doctors as well, because that's what we learn from. We don't learn Mm. to look at the anatomy with hair. We don't learn to look at a, you know, mahogany or, you know, some of the other colors that you said, eggplant or pink, or, you know, maybe we learned the pink, you know, sort of the very light uh, coloring, but for women uh, who are maybe uh, darker, either in skin or in pigment, um, you're going to have maybe more hair, depending on where you're from, more color, depending on your, you you know, your just general, you know, pigmentary persuasion, we'll say. (laughs) And so I think that it also can create bias in the potentially, you know, I'll say an OBGYN who's most likely going to be the one who's going to be examining you there, your medical doctor, your general uh, PCP as well. If they are not used to seeing, let's say, variations from a netter or from, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what they've seen in school, that that can also potentially cause some bias. Would you agree there or or yeah, what, is it, what I- are your thoughts there? So I would say that um, when you are actually in doing gynecological rotation, so, you know, when I was doing PAPS is what people know it as, um, I saw lots of variation. Uh, But I will say to your point, depending on where you went to school, depending on the patient population that you see, 
you may not have seen a lot of variation when it talks when you talk about deviations from the Caucasian body. So ma- majority of medical, I, I don't actually know if I can say there are medical textbooks that have variation in terms of body color. But we do know that there is a huge issue that the white body is the standard by which all clinicians are taught. This is problematic because it positions that the white body is the standard by which everyone should be compared to. To take that a level deeper, I mean, if you just look at an anatomy textbook, male anatomy takes up so much real estate female anatomy, you're going to get like, you're going to get like the vulva and here's the uterus and, you know, potentially being pregnant. And these, you know, these variations, what you're not going to get is a lot of variation on the clitoris, like a lot of image and diagrams in detail about the clitoris in the same way you do about the penis, which is crazy given that they're the same tissue as embryos. They are the same tissue that goes on to develop Based on, and I I do describe this in the book, and I do say in the book it is really complicated that there are more variations than XX and XY. And I know that blows people's minds because most biology teachers in high school are getting this wrong. But there are more variations than XX and XY. And just because you have an XY doesn't even mean you have the genes to respond to testosterone. And so you can be XY, but have female genitalia. So That's just so everyone understands it's way more complicated than I'm about to make it. So XX, that's what we think, you know, vulva, ovaries, vagina, XY, penis, scrotum. And with that, those, those in, you know, anatomical tissues, they all start out the same until there's a testosterone wash. And it is once in utero that testosterone floods in, should that Y chromosome have the gene that responds you differentiate away from the clitoris into a penis, away from ovaries and two testicles. And I think that's really important to understand because as we talk about, you know, how medicine positions that it is the male body as the standard, well, actually we were the standard and you are the deviation from that standard. Yeah. I remember learning in embryo that uh, I believe it was the labia majora, you know, with that testosterone wash, like you just get this sort of stitching up and then that becomes yeah. like they come together and then there's like this little, you know, kind of seam and that becomes the testes. Right. And I always remember going, wow, that's so freaking awesome. It is so yeah. fascinating. Right. Yeah. So, you know, but like back to your point, I think it is important that we recognize that provider bias exists. And if your doctor isn't getting more experience outside of, you know, just depending on where they live, then they may have a bias. So we understand this. For example, I talk about yeast infections in the book. There's that entire chapter about discharge and, you know, what could your discharge be and what can you do about it? Because I swear, like, if you're going to get a yeast infection or BV or anything, it's like going to happen on a Saturday night when you cannot get a hold of a provider. So I have all that information in there for you. And I talk about how we say classically the yeast infection is going to be that beefy red tissue. Unless you don't, unless you you don't have white skin, then it might look different. It could be a purple hue, or you might not even notice a difference. And I think that's important that as providers, we're educating in that way so that all bodies can understand how to actually identify what's been going on with them and so that they can advocate and get the best treatment. 
Yeah. And I would say what you just said is so true. Murphy's Law dictates that you are going to get bacterial vaginosis on a Friday at 5.30 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, everyone's gone home and you're like, damn it. (laughs) It'll be like 4.59. And you're like, no, I can't dial fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. All right. So let's come back to surgeries for a minute because you mentioned, uh, you know, surgery is trying to sort of, uh, or surgeons or maybe the a certain uh, segment of the medical establishment is trying to sort of push, you know, the labia should be even from side to side and it should have this pink hue, et cetera, et cetera. What are some of the um, surgeries, let's say? So I know that we have labial hypertrophy, which for some women, Mm -hmm. you know, you're on the bike, uh, you know, just everyday sort of activity. I've, I've, I've spoken to um, Sean Tassone about this a little bit, where there's women that come in and they complain that the labia are too large yeah. in so far as they are getting in the way of activities of daily living, like bike riding yeah. is, a, is a really... Um, or walking. Or, like or walking. Walking, especially when your thighs are trying to trap them. <laughs> when, what we're talking about here is the labia minora, so everyone knows. And labial hypertrophy, it's actually a clinical diagnosis, which is a bit of the problem is that, again, there can be provider bias. Like, do they want to push a surgery? Um, or they could just be not have had a lot of experience. There's no real standard. There have been some guidelines set saying like, okay, well, maybe if it extends beyond this point, but still it's it's at the, the provider's Subjective. discretion. Yeah. And it is something that I recommend that if one provider tells you you have labial hypertrophy, and they recommend a surgery and you're not having any symptoms, go get a second opinion because those opinions can vary widely. So with that in mind, this is why it's important that we don't shame people about decisions that they make. I bring up the topic of labiaplasty in the book because it is problematic when it is a predatory behavior by providers who are doing this service. It's uh, cosmetic physicians you'll see uh, have been criticized a lot by the American Medical Association, by the um, College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, because they've taken to TikTok. And some of the videos have been targeting teen girls. And the most popular surgery is called the Barbie. I don't know if you've taken off Barbie's pants. She's got nothing. She's got nothing. yeah, Yeah. And that's the standard. That is what is being told to young women whose bodies aren't even done developing, which is, you know, we shouldn't do surgeries on bodies that are, I mean, they, they're not going to do breast augmentation if your body isn't done developing. And yet this for a while was one of the top, you know, the top recipients of the surgery was teenage girls. So wow. there can be a time and a place for this. It's much more rare than the occurrence of the surgery itself. So the actual need for the surgery is much smaller compared to the number of people actually getting this surgery. And there is something to be said about feeling comfortable in your body. So although I sit here and I say, like, if it's functional, let it be. I would say let it be because the labia minora extends up to the clitoral hood, and we don't even understand the clitoris and the anatomy well enough to understand how this might impact your pleasure. And I have had patients that are like, no, it's actually pleasurable when I'm having penetrative sex and my labia minora are being tugged on. Like that actually feels good. So again, this is where it's highly individualized. And yet, if you are someone who's really struggling with body image issues and feeling like, you know, I can't I can't be comfortable with my body, it's not a situation where we just say, well, the surgery is not necessary. See a mental health provider. I think it is worth consulting with a board-certified plastic surgeon and at someone who specializes 
in down there care, not just like any run of the mill person and having a conversation about what your expectations are, what you might want to get out of this and, and them providing you real feedback. You know, our mutual friend, Dr. Tony Yoon, I love him yeah, because he always says like, I don't, I try to talk people out of plastic surgery. Like there is a time and a place. And if we could give people back, like, you know, feeling beautiful in their body, like let's do that. But we need to have realistic expectations and we need to actually counsel people to know that there's alternatives and other options and that surgery won't always solve everything for you. So my, you know, my recommendation is like meet with a board certified plastic surgeon Make sure that you understand the risks, the possible complications, how it might impact your pleasure, and understand you know, what it is you actually want to get out of this. And is right. that realistic? Yeah. Like, what are your expectations? How is this going to change your life in a meaningful and hopefully positive way? Mm-hmm. The other the other surgery, um, so I want to talk about um, the Barbie. Uh, the other surgery that I'm just going to say just chaps my ass is the extra stitch like the, you know, the the mom gives birth to her baby. I'm like trying so hard not to be just pissed. I'm like, don't cast, don't cast Dr. Brighton. Oh, you can cast, you can cast, you can cast. We'll get a little E on the, on the, on the rating of the show, but feel free to cast. But this one, this is the one where I feel yeah. that it is so top, it is so, it's so seeped and marinated in toxicity mm-hmm. and a lack of understanding of, vaginal reparation and function please yeah. please just talk about it because it just the, it's the one i hate i can't find any reason for this Mm-mm. to exist and yet it no. still does yeah. okay it's called the husband stitch for people who don't know or haven't birthed a human uh it's like ready for your new fear to be unlocked so allegedly the gynecologist the obstetrician who delivers your baby is supposed to be an expert in down there and I will see this a lot where people are like, if you're having any questions, like the expert down there is your gynecologist. And it's like, you're going to need to go to a pelvic pain specialist. You're going to need to go to PT. You're going to need to go to other providers if this so-called expert took liberties with your body. So I, I say all of this because if at any point you ever have this gut check where you're like, I don't no, I don't know about what my doctor's doing. Just because you've been told they're the expert doesn't mean that you relinquish your power, your control, your bodily autonomy. You make sure that you 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 stay in charge of, of your health. So with the husband stitch, it's after having an episiotomy, which has no, there's no reason to have an episiotomy. It used to be much more commonly practiced, but then evidence came out and said, uh, actually, this is not preventing tears and it's problematic. And tears actually heal better than cuts, as we know. Right. So with this, you might have a tear. Maybe your doctor did an episiotomy. And when they're stitching you back up, when they're suturing you, they will put an extra stitch in to try to make you tighter. This is where I'm like, how are you an expert of the vagina and the vulva? And you don't understand that tighter is not better. So the idea is very patriarchal, where they're like, well, this is for her husband. This is so things are nice for her husband. When in fact, it does nobody any service and it's a huge disservice, I would say, is because the a lot of the time you cannot have penetrative sex. Like it is so painful. So then he's not even having sex. Like you put an extra stitch in the husband stitch for him and now he's not even having sex. So it's this myth among doctors that if they stitch things up tighter, that a tighter vagina is somehow a better vagina and a more pleasurable vagina, but only to a penis. 
And it really is problematic. And it says so much about medicine that they are prioritizing a penis having pleasure over a woman being able to just have function and be pain-free. I I think I feel my blood boiling. It's like, what in the what in the United Kingdom made you think that, <laughs> you, that like what in the what in God's name or you know goddess's name made you think that this was going to help in any way? Like women have been delivering babies mm-hmm. longer than you've had a suture. And the to your point, like being tight, that's it's a fundamental misunderstanding mm-hmm. of the structure and function of the vagina. The vagina is a muscle and like mu- like muscles are under the control of hormones, they're under the control, you know, you can control how, you know, how you can squeeze and how you can release, but giving you that little extra stitch, that husband stitch. Well, this uh, is not even the way it works. I, it's I not even the, the way it works. It's yeah. so, oh. It's, it's like you're going to make the vulva a little bit tighter so that like at penetration, like as if that's like, I'm just like, just think it through. I know. Um, You're having one point where you're like, oh, it's tighter. The I talk about in the book, the phenomenon of tenting where the cervix actually moves back. So the uterus moves, the vaginal walls actually start to position in a way to be receptive to penetration. A tight vagina is a vagina that is scared. A tight vulva is a vulva that does not want you to enter or is not feeling safe or is not ready because it hasn't been adequately stimulated. There's not enough sexual stimuli or something else is going on. So that's the on point you. Is, yeah, the <laughs> so point is, you, sir. is that a tight <laughs> vagina is, you know, not or a vulva like yeah. this because in the case of vaginismus that I talk about in the book, like this is not an ideal situation. This is a situation where the body's actually saying, no, not now, not ready. And so it just is very perplexing. Like why, why did this ever get started and how does it still persist? And it does still persist because you see women on social media talking about giving birth recently and the provider took liberties with their body, non-consensually, stitched them up and took liberties with their body in the name of their husband's pleasure. And it was only after they had chronic pain and their husband wasn't able to have sex. You know, there was not no penetrative sex happening. And they went to another provider that they figured out what happened. And that is super problematic. Your provider should never do anything to your body without discussing it with you first. And there are certainly medical procedures where, you know, you're put under, you're not conscious, and you, the doctor has to do something to save your life. This is not it. This is not that situation. And furthermore, to not even tell you afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So you're left wondering like, what the hell is wrong with me? Or feeling like your body has betrayed you, or you feel like you're broken, or maybe you decide not to have another child because you're like, I can't go through that again. Yeah. Right. So it has so many implications that it could go off in a, in a myriad of tangents, but I just wanted to make sure that we brought that up. In case there is somebody listening, for sure there's going to be someone listening that's like, I never felt the same after I mm-hmm. gave birth. Like vaginas are, de- they are designed to deliver babies and then recover from them. But yeah. you're not going to recover next week. You know, it's going to no. take some, you know, it, you're, <laughs> yeah. it's going to yeah. take some time. It's going to take yeah. some time. And so that was, I actually remember, uh, thank God I had midwives. Uh, I mean, I love, I have friends who are OBs, uh, so no disrespect, but thank God I had midwives because they taught me 
all about, and they were lactation consultants again, thank yeah. God, because I walked in, I was like, I got the, don't worry, I got the football, I got the football move. I know the things. And they're like, okay, you have no idea what you're doing. This is how you yeah. do it. You have to put, you know, so thank God for my, my midwives. But, um, for someone who's listening, that's like, gosh, I just haven't felt the same. And yes, sex has been awful since I gave birth. It's, yeah. it, you know, maybe this is the sign or maybe this is the conversation that you needed to hear to maybe seek out a second opinion. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. All right. I want to talk about odor and... Mm -hmm and discharge. So you mentioned uh, cervical fluid um, and you have an entire chapter in the book. I think we, uh, I've done a few masterclasses on cervical uh, discharge because surprisingly, nobody knows. They're just like, what's the snot in my underwear? Sometimes (laughs) I don't know when it is and what, why, what it means. So let's talk a little bit about uh, vaginal discharge. Again, Mm -hmm. what is normal going with the theme of your book? And then uh, I'd like you to comment on how uh, a cervical fluid or cervical discharge changes with age as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, so in the book, I break down like there's discharge that can be problematic. Then there is cervical fluid. And then there's also arousal fluid. Now, the thing to understand is that your cervical fluid is changing throughout your menstrual cycle and it correlates with the changes of estrogen. So as you get older and you have less estrogen, you're going to produce less cervical fluid. And the so as they break it down in the book and you know quickly just so everyone understands, estrogen keeps the cells healthy. The health of the cells is vital because then they produce glycogen. Glycogen is a sugar. It feeds the lactobacilli in there, lactobacilli acidophilus, which make lactic acid, keeps the vaginal pH down at that like three and a half, four and a half range, which keeps everybody in check and in balance in the vagina. So estrogen is super important for that reason, and it is always also going to be stimulating your cells to producing fluid. The The peak of estrogen happens around ovulation, which is why we see that's the peak of cervical fluid. We see that egg white consistently consistency. If you've ever made meringue, it's that raw egg white in the bowl. That's, you know, or like you said, like snot, that is fertile cervical mucus. And that is going to be peak wetness in the cycle. And following that, here comes progesterone wah, wah, and everything starts to dry up. <laughs> and then can you even be harder to have your arousal fluid um, where you would ideally like it to be, which is why I make a case over and over in the book of why we just need to have lube on hand, ready to go in the bedroom. Best kind of lube. So it really... It really depends on what you're doing. I break down lubes in the book as well. So 
shower sex, anal sex, you're going to want to have a silicone-based lube. It lasts longer. Water-based lubes, you want to make sure they don't have glycerin in them. You want to look out for endocrine disruptors in everything, including sex toys, so like things like parabens. So your lube is no exception. Um, But looking at your lube, if you're someone who is prone to yeast infections, you want to avoid things that have glycerin in them because that can... That can make things worse. And then if you're like, I don't like to reapply over and over, water-based lube, not your friend. That's where like a silicone-based lube is better. And then some people just like, where people are like, it's antimicrobial, so it will like ruin your vaginal microbiome. I I haven't seen that totally pan out. It's definitely potentially there. And I think everyone needs to be aware of it. But the best way to approach that then is to use a lube that's made, or excuse me, a coconut oil that's made as lube for the vagina, because then it's usually a blend of oils. It's not just straight coconut oil. And uh, the thing to know about oils, though, is that if you know what you're doing is using a barrier method, mm, no, you can't. You can't use. Um, most condoms are going to break down with that kind of lube. So again, it all just depends on what you're up to, what you're into and what, you know, what your vagina, you know, is susceptible to like yeast overgrowth. Yeah. I saw something on Instagram, um, that I thought was upsetting and it was a woman, um, and she was talking about, you know, when your underwear changes color, uh, like when your vagina bleaches your underwear, that means yeah. that you need to change your underwear because it's it's too old, or you know you have to always <laughs> change your. Okay, isn't it? It's crazy, right? So yeah. let's first of all, why does our why do our vaginas bleach our underwear, yeah. and is that normal? I know I totally cover this in the book. Like literally, like every every question that you're like, this is so weird. Like, should I even ask this? I've covered it. Don't worry, I got you. You don't have to go ask on the internet. Um, okay, so here's the deal. That this is just about like how dyes work in clothing. And so the vagina, being acidic, can liberate the acid, can liberate some of these dyes. It tends to be the black dyes, the darker colored dyes. And then when you put it through a wash cycle, because of that effect of the acid, now those dyes can come free and then you have bleached underwear and and that can happen. And some people, if you never see this, it doesn't mean something's wrong with your vagina. It could also be detergent that you're using. Sometimes people are putting baking soda in their detergent. So that's alkaline. I mean, it can be, or maybe you're just buying, you know, higher quality underwear. <laughs> like that could be a potential uh, thing going on there as well. So um, yeah, I mean, definitely we should be like buying new underwear and changing our underwear. <laughs> you consider their wear and tear, but just because you see that one time doesn't mean that like, oh, your vagina ruined your underwear. I mean, it's certainly maybe unsightly, but it's it's not a sign of anything bad. You know, this like it very that what you saying that really reminds me about how I have seen on Instagram proponents of the vegan diet saying if you have a regular menstrual cycle, that you're toxic because the only reason for a period is for the uterus to detoxify and that if you lose your period, that is a good sign of health. Yes. And that being on a vegan diet can cause you to lose your period. And that means you're really healthy. And I'm like, this is where like our health classes have completely failed us because nobody should ever think that's healthy. You know, it seems like the crazier (laughs) the claim the more 
easily accepted it is by the and masses. how viral it goes yeah <laughs> I, mean, this post, I got tagged yeah. in it. it had like a million likes and I'm like I know that we're all fans of like I don't want to have to bleed it's really inconvenient but like if you like your heart beating normally and your bones functioning and muscle health and you know just feeling like you remember your life and your memories of where your keys are like no friend, like losing your period is not it. Never a good thing. I had uh, I had Mama Gina on the show uh, last year now, so she uh, is uh, wrote the book Pussy. Uh, she talks about very much an advocate for female pleasure. Uh, one of the things that we talked about, and I can't remember if we did it live on, like if it was on the podcast or it was just in the pre chat or the post chat uh, after the show ended, but she was saying um, that the scent of a healthy vagina, a healthy mm. vulva should be about that of yogurt. Like, and I can't remember the pH that she said, but obviously we're talking like, sour. Our, yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of sour, right? So our vaginas are not basic bitches. Yeah. Womp, womp. And nope. they're more, they're more acidic. Uh, is that in, in terms of scent now, of course, things like a bad, you know, a, um, BV, like bacterial vaginosis yeah. or yeast is going to change the scent, let's say, uh, the normal scent. But is that a pro are we sort of is that approximately correct when we're thinking about a healthy uh, vagina, healthy vaginal microbiome? Is it kind of like yogurt? Is that is that a, a very general sort of uh, litmus test to go by? So the idea that a vagina should smell like plain yogurt is because plain yogurt has lactobacillus acidophilus, and not everybody's going to smell like that. And I think a lot of the time there's confusion about where this smell is actually coming from. And I say confusion, people don't even think about it. They think if there's odor down there, it must be their vagina when it could be the sweat glands of their groin. So the same sweat glands that are in your armpit are also in your groin. And in the same way that you can sweat and you can have odor in your armpits, same is true of your groin. And we can sometimes have a phenomenon uh, that the, the internet I found calls Twaco, and it's where it smells like tacos or fajitas down there, which is when bacteria are oh, munching. Oh, I hate that word. I, just, ah! I don't like that word. Did you say with a TW, Twaco? Yeah, Twaco. Okay. So it's uh, essentially that. Uh, Why are there so many words for our anatomy? And there's like dick. For, like yeah. part of my French, but why is it just there's one word for male and then you have like the C word and then you have twat and you have all, I just, anyway, that's just, a, we'll that, get, maybe that's a, maybe that's a little deviation, but. I mean, the, I actually started a chapter talking about that. Like the, like, like <laughs> vulva is like the Voldemort of like anatomy. Like we just never say it. And so there's so many words because it's so impolite to talk about a woman's body or what it subtly tells us is this shameful thing to be talking yeah. about. But, yeah. you know, Twaco is the idea that it smells like a taco. Like it's someone's like, there are people, if you, people go Google this and you will have all the giggles in the world. Don't do it at work, but go Google it because people are like, why does my girlfriend smell like Taco Bell? Like it's delicious, but I don't understand what's happening. Um, and that can be a phenomenon of the bacteria releasing compounds called theols. And that's giving a onions and garlic and fajita kind of blend odor, uh, which many people find enjoyable. So don't sweat it, uh, pun intended, I guess. Uh, don't sweat it if that's you. So <laughs> well done, I think well it's just, <laughs> yeah, important to understand that this, um, so the odor may be your vagina, it may not be your vagina. So it could 
be the sweat glands. But when it comes to the vagina, you really have your own signature scent, your own signature taste. And, you know, and I wouldn't say like, oh, everybody should just smell like, you know, this. I think a lot of people think about that yogurt smell as being really sour, which is the acidity to it. And yes, there is like an acidic note. And so I would say not everybody's going to smell like that. But if you do smell like that, that's less problematic than smelling like baking bread or smelling like, uh, you know, fish-like odor, which again, that's not you. That's organisms producing something called amines. And it's normal organisms that belong in the vagina. You just don't have your lactobacilli keeping them in check. And do you find that, uh, have you had patients, let's say, uh, comment when they're tracking their cycle, do they notice that the scent changes over the course of the menstrual cycle? Like, do we get more tuacos at certain po- points of the cycle, more yogurt at other times? Because I even notice, like when I'm working out, I have like when I'm on my period, I have like a different kind of sweat. Like it's a, yeah. it's like, I call it my period sweat. Like I kind of yeah. have a different sort of scent. Yes. So that's a great question. Firstly, I've never actually asked people to track over their menstrual cycle, the TWACO phenomenon. The patients who have brought this to me are like so mortified that it's even happening to them. I haven't actually gone there. Now I'm like very curious of like, how does it change across your cycle? When it comes to your sweat and odors, absolutely. Your hormones totally rule this. So anyone who's ever been postpartum is probably familiar with the postpartum sweats and how you, your odor changes. Women who are in perimenopause, late perimenopause, especially, and postmenopausal, they notice their body odor changes. And then certainly it changes across our menstrual cycle. One of the key hormones involved in this is testosterone. So when you're in perimenopause and the you know progesterone is starting to decline, testosterone's still going. And testosterone can still be going when you're postmenopausal. And so that could be one thing contributing. And then certainly, you know, when you're on your period, you don't have the the challenge of progesterone at all happening in that phase. And you've got estrogen and you've got testosterone. Uh, for people who don't know, you still have estrogen being produced while you're on your period. There's a lot of talk about the phases of the menstrual cycle. And, the, you know, I get why it started to get broken down in four phases because the period does feel like its own unique phenomenon in itself. And I I take you through the book through these four phases. And I also remind everybody the follicular phase, which houses the period is called the follicular phase because the entire goal is to get to ovulation. Yep. So even while you're bleeding, that's just what your uterus is doing. Your ovaries are already on that egg making agenda. And we, so when we test for fertility, two to four days, two to four, of your period is when we're going to test. So if you you bleed day one, day two, three, four, we want to test your estrogen and see where it's at because it should be rising at that point. And that's just really important to understand because although I think a lot of people get confused that although you're still bleeding, doesn't mean you don't have estrogen that entire time that you're bleeding. Right, right. And there are other hormones like follicular stimulating hormone to your point around the follicular phase being all about the follicle, uh, luteinizing hormone too that are tested usually in that window that you that you've mentioned as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And the main goal of the entire menstrual cycle is ovulation. It's not the period. We are absolutely taught, yeah. Like the period is just like, you know, the thing. And it is the thing that could totally wreck your life and it, you know, can make it so that you have to pause and it can be the thing 
However, ovulation is the whole reason that we do what we do. And I think if we started teaching it that way, I mean, listen, it makes a lot more sense to be like, hey, day one is when you bleed. Let's track that because it's really, really obvious. It's what you see. Yeah. It's like what you can physically track. Yeah. But the number of women who don't understand that ovulation comes before menstruation because they're always taught the menstrual cycle the other way and the period being the focal point and not understanding that the period is a consequence of beta HCG not being present. And that the entire reason that you can get to a period is because you ovulated first. And that is so important to understand because if you don't want to have a baby and you don't have a period, you're not safe. Unless you're postmenopausal, you are not safe to just have unprotected sex because you don't know when you're going to ovulate again. Yeah. Very well said. I have a couple more questions on anatomy and then we can move into hormones as well because I can see the conversation naturally uh, sort of moving there. Um, All right. So let's talk about the hymen for a moment. I think that most of us were taught, I was taught, a small piece of skin, um, can be stretched, uh, usually is a, I was, uh, this is, I was taught this is incorrect what I'm about to say, that it break. you know, it's, it's proof of a a woman's uh, virginity that it breaks uh, on, you know, with, with penetrative sex. Of course, we know that the hymen can also break uh, if you are someone who rides horses, uh, if you're a gymnast, um, if you are Ball on the monkey bars, yeah, on the playground, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's not it's not just reserved for the first time that um, you have sex. So let's let's talk about the anatomy and and role of the hymen and maybe how it's been, uh, we'll say, misconstrued as a what should we say. Um, I'll call this a male dominated truth of like proof of proof of uh, her, her purity, let's say. Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, it is a very male perspective. Again, it's male centered perspective on the female body. And this is where I really take issue is how often the female body is taught from the lens that it was only made for a man. And if that's your belief, that's just perfectly fine. But the idea that there is any metric by which you can measure virginity is absolutely false. There's nothing that your doctor can examine or do to know whether you're a virgin or not. Because the construct and idea of virginity is just that. It's a societal construct and it's not based in science. And that is probably going to piss some people off in the comments, but it is the reality that in medicine, we do not recognize virginity. We don't recognize it as something that you can diagnose or that you can examine and be able to tell what is going on there. So To your point about the hymen, some people don't even have a hymen. Never had sex, don't have a hymen. It served a purpose of protecting the vagina in infancy from fecal matter getting in there. (laughs) Very good idea. Um, That also goes to like, but that's the function of it. That's what I wanted. I was hoping you'd say that. That's the function of the hymen is to prevent fecal matter from entering the vagina because little girls maybe don't know how to what you know like no whatever can happen diaper like i have an almost two-year-old right now in a diaper i actually went and checked his diaper yesterday and ended up with poop all over me because like poop gets everywhere in diapers but like everywhere up the back you don't know (laughs) (laughs) that's what it was yesterday i was like man i got caught off guard with that so this i mean that's what it is is that they don't yet know how to use the restroom and so that hymen goes away as we age because we don't need it because it no longer serves a function. So we talk about in the book, um, this rapper T.I., he he subjected his adult daughter to virginity tests. 
I'm like still just what like is that? What's the virginity test? Going to the doctor. I want to know who this freaking doctor is. Going yeah. to the doctor and having a vaginal exam for no medical reason other than he wanted to have her hymen assessed and be told that she was a virgin. You can't do that. What? Hymen stretch. As you said, anything could cause the hymen to change, including just aging, just getting older. So yeah, and it went, he was talking all about it. Like he was just like dad of the year with this bullshit. Um, the World Health Organization is like, this is not only problematic from the past, the, the fact that it's humiliating and degrading, but this is like a, 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 you know, just really harmful practice because women have been falsely accused of not being virgins and have met death in some countries. Yep. And it's based on absolutely they check the sheets. Nothing. They check the sheets after, right? Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. and this is the thing. If you bleed after sex, we always want to know why, even if it's your first time. So that's another myth that it should hurt the first time or that you should bleed the first time. That's usually you, somebody didn't get lube. Okay. Like your partner did not help with arousal. Like there's, there's going to be a lot of issues that go into that, but it's not normal to just expect the first time to hurt or the first time to bleed. And it's not normal to expect outside of your period that there would be blood after sex. There can be a myriad of reasons, including you have a sexually transmitted infection, and this is the only symptom you're presenting with. I'm so happy that we went there. Okay, let's let's transition just slightly into hormones. We've naturally been talking about them when you were talking about the follicular phase and the menstrual cycle. Um, one of the things that you talked about in part two of your book, uh, your cyclical self, was the so you talked about a, a myriad of different hormonal presentations. And we can touch on them here, but I wanted to start with the impact of glucose and mm. insulin, uh, which I don't think people, I mean, people always think, you know, sex life, reproductive <laughs> life, it's, yeah. it's estrogen and testosterone. But I, I wanted to highlight uh, glucose and insulin on in the role that it has potentially in changing or mitigating clitoral sensitivity. Can you talk a little bit about, A, what are some of the signs, clinical signs and symptoms of dysregulated uh, glucose, dysregulated insulin, and then how that impacts sex, our clit uh, the sensitivity of our clitoris. Mm -hmm. So I love that you brought this up. Not a, I haven't had a lot of interviews where people even want to talk about this because they want to talk about like ovarian hormones because that's where every, like all of their readers' questions and their audience's questions come from. And in the book, I talk about how your adrenal health and your insulin, which comes from the pancreas, is the foundation of your hormone health. And if you don't have that in check, forget the menstrual cycle. Like that is like going to be so problematic. Like you're That's never going to get those hormones. We're at base camp with glucose yeah. and insulin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think there's enough people talking about this. And people who are talking about insulin and blood sugar regulation, they tend to be more in the space where they're talking about longevity or they're talking about physical fitness. And so I don't think people always bring it back to like, wait a minute, that this is related to like thyroid function and ovarian health and sexual function. So it's well regarded that in men, if you have blood sugar dysregulation, we can see that the penis cannot come, become erect. So erectile dysfunction can start to become a problem because of how the blood vessels are affected. This clitoris is the same tissue. So before, and let me just say this, you're not going to be like, I can't orgasm and that's your only problem. So to your point about what are the symptoms, if you have brain fog, you should definitely consider getting your insulin, a fasting insulin 
And if you want to do fasting glucose, I think it always should be with fasting insulin and a hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month marker of what your blood sugar look like. This is a really easy entry point for most people. Their doctor is going to order this and regard this as an important test. So a very easy place to start to to evaluate all of that. No fighting now, with the no fighting with the MD to get the test. They're usually interested in this information as well. Yeah. Oh man. So they are. And I just want to say like I do think continuous glucose monitors are fantastic and I have for years. But how many medical doctors were like, this is just the wellness industry trying to make you like, you know, orthorexic, orthorexic and, yeah, and yeah. you know, feel like you have just one more thing to do. And um, I've yet to see these medical doctors really come out and recognize that all these studies are being published and people are being recommended that they have a continuous glucose monitor, even if they aren't high risk, because you can tell so much about the individual response that you have to food. So anyhow, I digress. Let's get back to symptoms. So Brain fog, certainly want to get it checked out. If you are someone who has hangry attacks, your blood sugar is not stable. And it could be just like, okay, the way you're eating or not eating, the way you're living life, or it could be something more going on. If you have signs like dark, velvety skin, um, and I want to emphasize the velvety. Actually, as I was writing my book and I was putting this symptom in there, and I wrote dark, velvety skin the person, the copy editor was like, but you made all these distinctions. Like if somebody already has dark skin, so if they already have dark skin, it won't be like that. I'm like velvety friend. Okay. If you have velvety skin in the Underline folds, velvety. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in the folds, like if your armpits, your thighs on the back of your neck, if you're having skin tags. So there's a whole um, questionnaire in the book so that you can understand some of these symptoms. But if these things are showing up, these are your early warning signs. And then if there is an issue with your like, I'm having a hard time orgasming, it could be related to your blood sugar. So there has been studies that show increased insulin, decreased sensitivity of the clitoris. And the clitoris is the pleasure structure for women. I'm not saying you can't get your pleasure other ways. And don't worry, friend, I outlined many in the book, but the clitoris is super, super important for orgasming. So I think we have to be talking about insulin and blood sugar regulation a lot more in women's health and not really relegating it to only being like, oh, if you have diabetes or if you're an old person or, you know, these things that people have really passed off and recognize that everybody thrives on balanced blood sugar. Yeah. And you don't wake up with type 2 diabetes, right? No, you don't. (laughs) It's a slow sort of progression. And in some cases, uh, I've read some studies where they've been able to see some indication of insulin resistance in in otherwise, like, you know, they would appear healthy 20-year-olds. You know, know, when they do a lot of the studies, they tend to be in universities and colleges. So we're seeing 20-year-olds, let's say, 25-year-olds that are displaying some early signs of IR. Uh, mm-hmm. When they would otherwise appear healthy, I mean, sometimes you know, yeah. we were we were always taught to sort of scan the body and sort of look for like things like darkened circles under the eyes, like you were saying, the velvety skin, the skin tags. But sometimes it's not even that. Like you don't even have those. You I mean mm-hmm. even that in and of itself, you might argue is has been going on for a while in order to have some of oh, these yeah. changes, right? So yeah, and that's why the brain fog. I'm like right away, get that checked, and if you. Wake up in the middle of the night and you're hungry. You've got blood sugar dysregulation happening. You need to get that checked as well. But I love that you bring up that you can't tell by looking at a body how healthy it is. I talk about that in the book. And I do see people online have challenged me this so many times. They're like, no, if somebody 
you know, people, this, this, these are other people's words. If somebody is fat, they're obviously unhealthy. And it's like, well, no, I've run cardiometabolic panels on people whose BMIs are not ideal. And I'm like, whoa, go you. Like you look amazing on paper. You look amazing. How do you feel? I feel amazing. Okay. Like you're doing great. And these are people who are exercising. They eat a really nutrient dense diet. They're doing all the things that people see as markers of health, but because their body doesn't fit into a particular framework, they're like, they can't be healthy. And then on the flip side, I have seen people who are very thin. They're that like double zero that like the entire fashion industry tells us we should be. You can absolutely be healthy at that size. But I have seen people who like their inflammation is through the roof. Their lipid panel is looking horrible. So for people who don't know, that's their cholesterol. Their LDL particles are up. And when you've got high LDL and you've got high inflammation, you are setting yourself up for heart disease. So I've seen a lot of variations in body types and them not matching the expectation when you get their blood work back. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that can cause obesity. Medications can cause obesity. Thyroid mm-hmm. dysfunction can cause, so you could be doing all the right things and yeah. your thyroid, even your, you know, the, I've seen, um, in, even on the birth control pill, people can gain quite a bit of weight on, on the birth control pill as well. And the, the sort of the, the double zero, uh, sort of phenotype that you described, I was talking about this with, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig, uh, a few years ago now he calls them, uh, tofies. So thin on the outside, but fat on the inside, mm-hmm. right? So like you have that appearance of thinness, right? Or goodness. I'm using air quotes yeah. if you're listening. Um, but in, you know, your subjective, you know, your relative fat mass relative to your lean muscle mass is actually mm-hmm. w- not where it should be. Um, so there's lots of, lots of variation um, for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about, so we're talking about inflammation, uh, glucose and insulin on, uh, let's say, clitoral sensitivity, uh, pleasure. And mm-hmm. let's talk about cortisol because this is, so we have a lot of women that listen to the show who are in perimenopause. Yeah. Um, and probably in my observation, and I, I welcome yours here as well, is stress management is in perimenopause. I think this is the number one thing that women have to, this is a skill acquisition that has to happen. We have to learn how to better manage our stress. You could have been a basket case in your 20s and 30s and kind of gotten away with it. But in your 40s, you got kids that are kind of growing up, you got aging parents, you have careers and maybe a marriage that wasn't, you know, isn't maybe what it used to, or there's residue in some vertical of your life. And I think that high cortisol and then the eventuality of low cortisol, I think also has a huge impact on menstrual cycle, certainly libido. I, w- I would love for you to speak a little bit about high car- high cortisol and then the opposite, low cortisol and that effect that it has on our sexual health. It is so unfair to be a modern woman going through perimenopause in the way our society is set up. I think that is, it absolutely has to be said because we talk about stress management and it is so important that you manage your stress because once you're in menopause, it's all about those adrenal glands. However, exactly what you said, you are likely sandwiched right now between being a caretaker of elderly parents and being a caretaker of children in a society that never sets you up to be successful with children. 
Now, maybe you're listening to this and you live in some other country that subsidizes childcare and made sure that you had maternity leave and paternity leave and all of that. In the United States, we don't get that. France, we they have seeing, someone that lives with you for like four to six months. Like yeah. go France. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Denmark and like so many of them, yeah. so many of them, like they know what they're doing. Mm. The US, I will say it, I don't care how patriotic you people are, like the US is failing families. They are failing. It's failing women. It is just failing in so many ways. And we see this as evidence by the health of our population, namely the caretakers of our population. So, yeah. you know, when you consider, when you just look around, I mean, people ask me all the time on interviews, like, do you think there is an epidemic of hormone issues just that's so unique to perimenopausal women? And it's like, you don't even have to ask me. You just like go to the grocery store, see it, just see it for yourself, like what is happening. And so you're absolutely right. We have to work on stress management because there's so much outside of our control. We've got to focus on what we can control, which includes ditching people who suck, get them out of your life. Like you do not have time for that. We need you showing up in your full energy, power, and sharing your gifts with the world and sharing that with, the, especially if you're a mom. Like you're raising the future of our society. So please put your energy where it needs to be. And that includes, you know, making sure that like things that you can control, like social media, TV, things that spike your cortisol, no good. Because there, I mean, we just lived through a pandemic. Like there are going to be things outside of our control. But if we can build resiliency, health of our adrenal glands now, and the ability to decompress, and yeah. not at just the end of the day. Start your day with parasympathetic exercises like deep breathing so that you get into that state. And that is the tone you set for the day because that's going to make all the difference in how your adrenal glands respond. So the adrenal glands are two little glands that sit on top of the kidneys for people who don't know. And they do produce cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, stress hormones. They also produce DHEA, which is a precursor to testosterone and estrogen. And they produce aldosterone. This is why we're always telling you to be hydrated. Um, but, you know, I see all the time doctors be like, you don't really need eight glasses a day. And I'm like, yeah, you probably need more. <laughs> you probably need why, more minerals. Why is that becoming a topic of conversation? Oh I have been God. also seeing that too. Like, where did the eight cups come from? Where did the eight glasses of yeah. water come a day? I don't understand why people are challenging that. That's just bizarre. Well, it's so funny to me because I had... Um, the, I will say like rule number one of the internet, don't comment on other people's bodies or habits as if you know how to live their life better than them. I think that's just something we could all live by. And the, you know, I have had, like I had this gynecologist, I was drinking out of a mason jar and I was commenting about how I was drinking 120 ounces of water a day. And she comes on and comments and says, this is just influencer bullshit. And you're so unhealthy and you're like all this stuff. And like, you're showing people like a horrible way to live and all these things. And I'm like, Hi, Gee, you're lovely. You're lovely. I'm breastfeeding. <laughs> yeah. So I'm so glad that you're an OB-GYN hating on me for hydrating and honoring what my body needs while I also feed another human. And she's like, well, that's different. You have to disclose every time that you're breastfeeding. I'm like, I don't have to do anything, anything yeah. on my page. You walk away. Like, what is this? And I'm just like, why do you think it's okay just because you have a white coat to come on and like hate on people about, I mean, I see it when people are like, 
oh, I aim to get like eight to nine hours. And there will be doctors being like, nobody needs that much sleep. You'll be probably be fine on six and seven. I'm like, why are you just so freaking contrarian? Like I got a 10 year old in my house that behaves like that. And I chalk it up to the fact that his brain's not done developing and that like he's got to find his way in society by challenging everything. But you're literally doing this because you are so starved from attention from people that in your life or, or what is it that you have to come on the internet and behave or misbehave in such a way. So yeah, you need these things. You need that. Like, it's just like, if you look at the fact that when you start to get dehydrated and not fully dehydrated, like we rarely get there, right? It's like, we don't have enough water. The adrenal glands have to respond by making aldosterone. Aldosterone is going to help with potassium and sodium balance in your body to keep your blood pr pressure at a healthy place so that your brain gets what the blood that it needs. Like, this is really, really important. So dehydration can be a stressor for the adrenal glands. And I bring this up. It might seem so basic to people, but I will tell you that time and again, patients in perimenopause who are really struggling, when I go through and ask them about the basics, they are skipping feeding themselves adequately. That means nutrient-dense diet, fat, protein, fiber at every meal like I talk about in my book. They are skipping hydrating themselves. They are skipping getting adequate sleep. And a lot of the times it is because they're altruistic. They are sacrificing themselves for everyone else in their life. And then I get the patients who are in menopause who realize that's what they did and how hard it was on their hormones in their life and how much they missed out on. Out on. And they tell me, if I had to go back, I would never have done that. And that to me, I'm like, look, for the wise women who are going ahead of me, who are saying I would never... I would never run myself to the ground, burn the candle at both ends, like skip just the basic needs and giving my body what it needs just to show up for people in my life. Like that's something worth listening to because the reality is, is that you have to ask how much are you actually showing up for people in your life when you are always second? Yeah. And we've never done that before as women. You know, yeah. I think historically in the human, like we've always been a collective. There's always been women helping women, mothers and grandmothers and aunts in the same home, in the same community, in the same vicinity, neighbors taking care of kids so mom can get a nap, someone brings her food and cooks for her. Whereas yeah. now it's the superwoman complex, or su I think that's what it's called, the superwoman complex, who's, she's every, she's everything to everyone. And yeah. you know, I'm, I'm 45 now. It's like, you don't get a medal. You know, mm -hmm. no one's showing up at your door and be like, good for you. You ran yourself into the ground for yeah. 20 years. Here's your medal. No one does that. Yeah. You know, no, you're so right. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say, you're so no, right. Please, and, please. you know, part of the problem, again, comes to this modern society. And I really hate when I see people be like, well, how does it feel that you have it all now? And it's like, women went to work and then we didn't teach men how to task share. And so when you say have it all, we get to be the emotional support of the household. We get to be in charge of all of the all of the tasks. And running a household is a full-time job. It yes. is a lot of work. Yes. And so you see these comments and it's like, that's not what we ever wanted was to have it all. We just wanted to have opportunities, the same opportunities that were afforded to other people in our society and have those options. And that, again, if you are someone who's in perimenopause, I think it's really easy to fall prey to some of the things that influencers do say because they're marketing to you, saying things like, it is your fault that you're overweight. It is your fault that your hormones are like this. Like you're not doing enough and pause. In fact, what I have to take away is staggering from patients of like, you're actually doing enough. Like, how do we, how do we pare this down? You're doing, you're doing way too much. And I'm not just talking about health. I'm talking about life 
in general and looking at how do we live differently so it's not such a mismatch between our environment and how we've evolved. So to your point of like high cortisol, low cortisol, I have a quiz in the book and it helps you understand where are you at. Now, there's no real situation where your adrenal glands just like kaput and they don't make cortisol unless you have something called Addison's disease, which is a very rare autoimmune condition. You you would know <laughs> there's lots going wrong. Like you might end up in the hospital. That's how bad this is. And that's how bad low cortisol can be. What often happens is we're in a high state of cortisol for so long that our body's wisdom kicks in and says, we're going to die. At the cellular level, we are going to age so rapidly that we are going to die before our time. And we're not here for that. So here's what we're going to do. We're The brain's going to talk and we're going to say, I don't care. The brain is going to you know, talk and we make cortisol and we're going to convert it into cortisone. We're going to inactivate it. Receptors on the cells, downregulate them. Less message getting to the cells. That way you stay safe. But then you wake up and you're like, I'm completely exhausted and I have headaches and I feel like I'm sick all the time and I'm always the one getting sick and I can never kick things because again, adrenal glands, cortisol, anti-inflammatory, very important in the immune system. So again, doing way more than just a stress response. So you start to have all of these symptoms and then you think like, well, I must not be making enough cortisol and I need to, this is where people, I will see them asking me, I went and bought adrenal glandular on the internet and I'm taking that. And at first I felt better, but now I'm like jittery and anxious and gritting my teeth and like, I feel awful. And it's like, yes, because the problem wasn't that the system needed more gas. The vehicle wasn't set up to run. So you fill the gas tank, you put the pedal to the metal, and it could go a little bit. But then the underlying issues that were always there came in to to rear their ugly head, so to speak, but really to stop you in your tracks, because otherwise you're going to have a car fire. Whole thing's going to blow up. It's going to be bad. So I think it's so important to reframe that it's not about your body's misbehaving. You need to come in. You need to push harder. This is where it's like, let's take it back to the basics. I will start to focus more on sleep and what you're doing in the evening. I have a product I formulated called Adrenal Calm. And people are always like, why do I want to take that? I want, I want the, I want the adrenal support, I want the morning formula, I want the go, go, go. And I'm like, Adrenal Calm is one of those ones I do not skip, especially when I'm traveling, because it has L-theanine, phosphatidylserine, which is going to bring down cortisol. It has everything to help you get deep restorative sleep. And that is the secret of healing your adrenal glands and getting them optimized, getting all of your hormones optimized is getting into that restful sleep. But so often everybody focuses on put more into the system, get it going, get it going, and not recognizing rest is where it's at, that restorative period where you can slow down and get really mindful about life. I love that you're saying this because all the women who have cortisol dysregulation, y'all know the same, like it's it's wired and tired or you wake mm-hmm. up in that two to four, you know, drop zone in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. As you were saying, you know, the change in immune function and then kind of bringing it back to sexual function as well, I would probably, uh, and I, I would love for you to think about this uh, or comment on this, is that they're libe- like, who's in the mood? You know, when you, <laughs> if well, you got to survive, you cannot yeah. be reproducing and your body yeah. is like, we like pleasure because pleasure brings babies. I, even if you don't want a baby, your your body is basic like that. that. Again, ovulation is the goal. Like that's what it's doing. But yeah. you're absolutely right. So in the libido chapter, 
I talk through I talk through the psychology research of the dual control model and and uh, you know Rosemary Basson's research in terms of context and all of these different ways of like looking at our libido from the psychological perspective. But what I did different than other books out there is I brought in the whole hormone conversation and really went deeper on how do these hormones impact you so that you can understand like it's it's rarely a testosterone issue. It's and people are always shocked when I'm like it's rarely just to give testosterone issue and the stress hormones are such a big big component in why we're not in the mood. I mean, if you're tired and you're hangry and you're cranky and you're having hot flashes and all of this is going on, you're not going to feel sexy and you're not going to feel like it's sexy time. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, testosterone, I feel, is almost always downstream because you got, we were talking about the glucose and insulin. You got dysregulated glucose. You got sex hormone binding globulin is is dysregulated, which is going to make testosterone dysregulated and estrogen dysregulated. So there's all these things that we've been discussing that are important to, uh, we'll say, I don't like the word fix because I feel like healing is about wholeness, not about Mm -hmm. you're broken and you need to fix something. But that's where I think we need to start. But I think it's easier for the for the perimenopausal woman to be like, just what's the supplement? Just give me the yeah. supplement. Give me the, you know, Tongit Ali. Give me the whatever it is for my testosterone. Just give me the maca so that yeah, I want to have the- sex again. I'm like, exactly. mm, it doesn't work that way. Also, yeah. if like your partner isn't putting in their fair share, your nervous system is going to be like, we're not safe. And a nervous yeah. system that says we're not safe does not want penetrative sex, does not want someone inside their body. Like, let it sink in that this is the most vulnerable state that you can be in, in a partnership. And, you know, some people would argue, like, emotionally, you could be a lot more vulnerable, but, like, physically, oh, you have sex with a man. Yeah. Like, somebody's going to be in your body. You have to feel safe. You have to feel secure. And your hormones and your nervous system have to be aligned on that. And this is why we see so many coaches that have popped up. It seems like I've noticed coaches popping up uh, around masculine energy and feminine energy again, oh, yeah. like gender agnostic, right? We're not talking about gender or, or even chromosomal sex, but just the masculine and the feminine to get to allow, as you're saying, someone to enter your body, you have to feel safe with that person. Mm-hmm. That is that is sort of anchoring into that, that feminine energy, we'll say, to surrender to uh, that power differential that exists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Have you seen, there have been, a, there's been this pop up of uh, these coaches that are like, I'm a feminine, you know, energy coach and I let my partner work and I'm a home care. I take care of the home and that's what I do. So I stay in my feminine energy. And there's actually like a whole movement of women saying, the only way to be in your feminine energy is to let your man lead, to let him be in charge to not work, uh, to basically be dependent on him. And I'm like, wow, we're really missing the mark here on all of this. Because just as you said, the idea of the feminine and masculine energy isn't gender bound. The idea of who works, who's the breadwinner, who's the home, you know, homemaker, that is gender bound in our society. That is a construct of our society uh, of, a way, of a way back time, right? But this idea of the feminine and masculine energy it exists in all bodies, regardless of how you identify. It exists in all bodies, and we all can cultivate this balance of things. And you know, other ways this has been said is like yin and yang, 
for, you know, people say light and dark or, you know, other ways is just, you know, the, the, the hustle and the rest, like to put it in like modern times. Sympathetic so, parasympathetic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's, and so to be, ways, yeah. there's so many ways to say it, but I feel like it's really been bastardized lately that I'm just seeing. And like all of these coaches well, that's are extreme. That's very extreme. Very, I, well, and it's, it's missing the mark. It's like, yeah. that's not the point. So, yeah. and to dwell only in your feminine is to deny this entire other aspect of yourself. Um, and we have, right. We have like, <laughs> we have the capacity to like go hard, like the adrenal glands, like we were just talking about, like we have that capacity. Yeah. Um, and I think the idea of being like, you know, just your day-to-day activities define all of that is really, uh, it's problematic, honestly, because I'm seeing all these coaches are like in their early 20s and I'm like, oh, honey, man, I made some mistakes in my early 20s. So I'm not judging you, but like, like you know, this is going to be a bit of a road. It's going to be yeah. a bit of a road. Yeah. And, and you know, we have to love, we have to love everyone where they are. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, I, for I can say personally, I tend to run more masculine. Like I tend to run, like I want to read the literature. I want to understand the science. I want to understand the mechanisms. And even just in my business, obviously, you know, I've sort of run the show, but I do uh, really enjoy uh, kind of surrendering to, it's still sometimes it's, I'm a work in progress people, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's really hard for me to shift into slowness to mm-hmm. not do anything. Sometimes I'm like, I'm going to take a break. So uh, that means I'll just do the laundry and I'll uh, prep some food for the kids when they come home. And, and my partner will often be like, that's not resting. You're still yeah. figuring out something else to do. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that's right. So yeah. I do, I, I am, you know, I, I think, and what I notice kind of around this cortisol uh, conversation that we're having is that there are so many women who we've we've grown up in this sort of modern westernized we'll say society where the accolades and the success and the masculine energy the uh, you know the pursuit of and the hunter and all of that is very much celebrated like workaholic it's an addiction mm-hmm. but it's one that's celebrated right yeah um so i think what i notice is that it's very difficult generally so of course there are exceptions to every rule here but my observation clinically generally is that women have a harder time slowing down so you don't have to become the homestead and you know the you know the extreme example like i'm just going to let my husband do all the things like that may or may not work for that person. That's not necessary. But I almost feel like, you know, I've kind of joked and I said sympathetic, parasympathetic, that there's almost been a loss of how to activate the parasympathetics. Like, how can you just feel good in your body right now? Like, you Mm -hmm. know, to the haters that show up on your Instagram feed, like maybe they just need to come. Like, maybe they just need like... (laughs) Like that's parasympathetic, right? Like it's point, like I always learned it, it's like point and shoot, right? So like you parasympathetic buildup, sympathetic release, and then, you know, the climax, and then you kind of come back down to uh, to normal. But maybe we just, you know, learning to relax into pleasure, learning to relax into joy. And, you know, I know I've talked about this before. I, I'll just bring it up for you to comment on because I, I would love your thoughts here. But whenever I say joy, people are like, oh yeah, I know that word. That's an English word that means happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't actually know what that means. Like, what does she mean? Do I, what does she mean by, do I feel joy? Like, I don't know. What does that mean? What are we talking mm-hmm. about here? So can you comment on, has that been your observation as well? Or, you know, something, something other than yeah, that? Yeah, certainly. You know, as you bring all of this up, 
I think about the typical gender roles that we have seen, right? Dad goes to work. He comes home. He kicks off his shoes. He watches TV. Like he gets to have his downtime. We saw this, right? What we saw in women is if you're a homemaker, it never stopped. I think that is the hardest job to be a stay-at-home mom because it is 24-7. It is so many tasks. Like you're doing so many things. But we never have really, um, I think it's more in new generations that we're starting to see examples of something other. But what's interesting is when you look at what is going on for women in society who get married, they're not living as long. Women who are single live longer. Women who marry men don't live as long. And in addition, they lose hobbies. They stop engaging in hobbies. They stop engaging in things that bring them joy, which is where I think we find ourselves in a place where people are like, this is such a foreign word to me. What does this even mean? Because it really has been celebrated to be giving up so much, to be sacrificing. And the sacrifice is celebrated. But nobody asks at what cost. Because celebration is a short-lived little dopamine hip. It is not going to keep you going. And it's certainly not going to keep you healthy. And so, you know, this is... I think this is important for people if you're like, what does this have to do with hormones? It has everything to do with hormones. Because you are a complex biological system that is surveying the environment and is very in tune for the environment. If you were born with ovaries and a womb, you your body is going to be set up in this way. And so I say that because maybe you are infertile. Maybe you decided not to have children. But understand, even if that's the case, your body had to be super in tune with the environment and still is. And so whatever signals are coming into the environment, whether it's you choosing not to rest, whether it is you feeling like you can't find joy, you can't engage in hobbies, these kinds of things are going to send that danger signal. And that danger signal is what shifts you into push the adrenal hormones, shut down the ovulatory hormones by progesterone, which as an aside, if you're in perimenopause, I think it's so cruel that we lose progesterone, which is that chill hormone helps us sleep, help us feel less anxious, and that we've got to tend so much to our adrenal glands in this modern society. And yet that is the reality. So if you are somebody who is 45 or younger, you know, depending on where you're at, if you're not in that year stretch before menopause, you have time to recover your progesterone, to get your progesterone to more optimal levels. You can never do that if the signal from the environment is that we are not safe. We are not safe for whatever reason. We're not sleeping well. We're not staying hydrated. We're not, uh, we're over-exercising. We're not eating enough calories. We have a partner who maybe doesn't make us feel good. And let me just say, like, people always love to argue and be like, it's not up to your partner to always make you feel good. True. And the person you decided to cohabitate with has a very in- big influence on your mental health and on your physical health Sick. and your physical I was, well-being. I would say the biggest influence because you see them every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many times in practice I was like, listen, you either got to leave your job or you got to leave your husband or both. Mm. Yeah. Because <laughs> just things wouldn't get better. Like, oh, yeah. I got into an argument or you get into their neck and their shoulder area and it's like, oh, my boss or. Yeah. Yeah. 
that pain in the neck is a real that, phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, 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 completely. Well, you know, I'm I'm looking at the time here, and I'm I want to be respectful of your time. I know that uh, you have beautiful children to attend to, and I know that you're um, on a on a on a book tour somewhat. And I yeah, wanted speaking to speaking of doing all the things, yeah. right? Speaking so of doing all the way to out me there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are very busy and important, and I want to honor you. I could speak to you for the rest of the day, truly, um, but I know that you have other things to attend to. I, if you're watching on uh, on YouTube, this is the book. It's pink and black and fabulous. It's called Is This Normal? You can get this anywhere books are sold, I'm assuming, like online, in person, all the yep. places, yeah? Yep. Um, tell people where they can. I know you have a 28-day program uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. Is there is there a live version of that, or is there other ways that people can work with you? Like, How can people find you if they want? Well, the thing I want to say is that there's also a digital cookbook. It's a full cookbook that goes with Is This Normal? And so you'll get back into the 28-day program. There's a URL there. We have over 50 recipes, four weeks of meal plans, and it maps with your menstrual cycle, teaching you how to eat in a way to optimize not only ovarian hormones, but getting your thyroid, your adrenal glands, and all of your hormones working really well. The insulin's a given. There's not a meal in there that's not going to help with insulin. So um, I definitely recommend checking that out and using that along with the 28-day program. We just could not fit that much into the book because it was so large. And um, my my editor was like, just write a cookbook in the future. And I was like, I'll just write a cookbook now. And it's in there. So it's two books for one. Make sure that you grab that. Congratulations on the book, Jolene. This was a Again, fabulous conversation as always. I love any time that I get to spend with you. It's time well invested. So thank you for your oh, brilliance so and your much. focus. Yeah, this yeah. has been great. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.